If you were with us last Sunday morning, you will no doubt remember we began a new series of studies from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And this series of studies throughout the month of November is entitled, Have You Tried the Basement? And I will explain that rather strange, enigmatic title as we move through our study this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, could you turn to Isaiah chapter 53 as we read verses 1 to 10. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 10. And as you come to this passage, it's helpful to have in your mind that Isaiah is writing approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ. And what he writes here in Isaiah 53 is a result of Isaiah looking into the future and understanding all that the Messiah would be involved in and all that he has accomplished for us. And so with that in mind, let's begin at verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, and so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. The strange title, Have You Tried the Basement?, comes from the image in my mind that either in our basement or in our attic, these are often the two places in our house where we store things of significance and value. 
And those are also the two places when we go to look for stuff, when we think, oh yeah, I remember we used to have, or I remember having, and it was this and that, and it's probably in the basement, or in the attic. And the marvelous thing, of course, is when you go to either the basement or the attic and start rummaging through boxes, you start to find things that bring back memories Often photograph albums where you see people and places that you had forgotten about and those memories wash all over you again. I suspect in a few weeks when we gather with family and friends for Thanksgiving, some of us will pull out our phone because we will not have seen them in the last seven or eight months and say, oh, over the summer we did. Or, oh, here is Tom on his first day back at school. Here is Samantha as she went off to college and we'll go through the photographs on her phone, reminding ourselves of all that has taken place in the course of this year. And of course, some of those photographs with families and friends, we will be standing wearing masks, we will be six feet apart, and we will have to explain to further generations what on earth was going on. And some of us, of course, have our own personal photographs on our cell phone when we're standing outside the grocery, triumphantly holding paper products. And future generations will ask, what was going on? And you'll have to explain. And those memories will flood over you. Now imagine in your mind once again, you're in the basement or the attic and you open up a box and here's a family Bible. And you'd forgotten that it has details of your great-grandparents and your grandparents, nieces, nephews. And as you start to flick through it, some passages are underlined. There's little notes and margins. And when you come to Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 10 are underlined. There's little notes beside them. The page has been well-thumbed and slightly stained from use. There's every possibility you will stop and pause and read it again. You might even find you're pulling out a box to sit on and wonder why it was so important. Why was it so impactful in the life of generations gone by? And this morning as we come to this passage... That is exactly what I hope we will do. Pause and consider and look at the significance of all that Isaiah wrote. As I said earlier, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Last Sunday morning, if you were with us, you remember I said, or at least walked us through some of the political, religious and cultural context of all that was happening in the book of Isaiah. I also mentioned that there were two other major themes running through Isaiah. One of them, Old Testament scholars tell us, is that Isaiah writes in a manner that can be described as supra-historical. And by that, Old Testament scholars mean this, that Isaiah steps back from time to time. And he doesn't talk about the immediacy of the day but he gives us a much larger picture, almost from 37,000 feet up, so you can see God at work 
orchestrating and engineering and bringing to pass his purpose and his will. And the other major theme running throughout Isaiah, of course, reminds us why Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. Because it focuses on God's redemptive love for humanity. And in many ways it contains similar themes to the gospels themselves. And that's exactly where we will be going this morning. And in the midst of all of that, Isaiah goes to great pains to remind us again and again and again. And we saw it last Sunday of the faithfulness of God amidst unprecedented challenges and change 2,800 years ago, but equally applicable to us this morning. And so as we come to this well-known passage, it's helpful to know that this passage is special, distinct. This is a passage that's often talked about in academic circles as the suffering servant. There are four passages in Isaiah that focus on the death of Christ, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, then again in chapter 49, then again in chapter 50, and arguably 52, 13, all the way to 53, 12, is perhaps the best known of the suffering servant songs, when Isaiah is writing and looking ahead to all that was to take place at Calvary, and hence he is focused on that literary mechanism of supra-historical once more. He's saying, stand back, understand all that God is doing, not just in the history of Israel as a nation, not just as they come back home after 70 years of captivity and set up and establish an independent nation once again. Isaiah reminds us that God's purposes are so much greater than that. And here in chapter 53, he is not so much focused on addressing national identity or how they set themselves up to be an independent nation, as I said, but he goes much deeper. And he begins to unfold for us the work of the Messiah. Often we are tempted to think that the Scriptures is about man's search for God. How do we get to know him? How do we seek him out? Where can he be found? And this is a written record of that experience and desire. But in fact, the scriptures are the opposite. It is a written record of God taking the initiative of him coming into our world. He is the one who created his redemptive purposes way back before the very foundation of the world. God was at work purposing and planning redemptive history in order that we can come to know him and have immediacy and intimacy with him. That's what's going on here. Isaiah reminds his own readers, God is not distant, not far off, not disinterested, but in fact the very opposite. And Isaiah, recognizing, writes out for us in these four sections and the one we are about to delve into, 
God's incredible, eternal, majestic love for us. Now, before we look at the passage, let me please remind you of one more thing. Today, in a 21st century context, and we mentioned this several weeks ago, we are tempted to believe that value and significance and worth are determined by how connected we are to our smartphone or our iPad or to Facebook or WhatsApp or TikTok or Instagram. They often determine how we spend our leisure hours and our work hours. In fact, some of it defines who we are. And we need to be so awfully careful because please hear this understand exactly what I'm going to say and the enormity of it. God, in seeking to build a relationship with us, does not send us an iPad or a smartphone. He doesn't. He doesn't keep in touch through Facebook and WhatsApp or text us. In fact, He has done something so much greater, so much deeper. He Himself comes into our world to establish and build and mature a relationship with us. A relationship with us. That's what's going on here. And the very climax of that relationship is expressed here in Isaiah 53. And we discover, of course, that he doesn't send someone simply in order to bring a relationship which is spectacular in itself, but he sends for us a saviour, a redeemer, not just an example of how to live, not just a friend who can support and encourage us, but a saviour. And that's why Isaiah writes the way he does. That's why he writes in verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Do you remember that old adage that some of you perhaps learned in Sunday school as a child? You may have touched on it recently as an adult. And Isaiah does this wonderfully. The old, and talking about the Old Testament and New Testament, the old is the new concealed. And the new is the old Revealed. That's exactly what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 53. Of course, Isaiah is taking us to the cross. He's pointing us in that direction. He's highlighting for us and reminding his initial readers 700 years before the birth of Christ and every generation since that the cross lies at the very center of God's eternal purposes. And Isaiah knows this. And he is aware that the power and impact of sin in our lives and in our world is devastating and destructive. And in fact, he fully realizes that at the cross... At Calvary, God deals with the depravity and barbarity of human sin. He doesn't say, 
it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. There's no sleight of hand here. He doesn't minimize it, but rather he looks at sin straight in the eye and he deals with its addictive nature. He breaks into our lives by His grace and brings with it emancipation from the enslaving nature of sin. And not only does He deal with its addictive nature, not only does He deal with its enslaving nature, He deals with its deceptive nature by transforming the heart of the Christian and gives us new appetites, new desires, new motivation. We are new creatures in Christ. That's what's going on here. And in spectacular manners, God responds to the barbarity of sin with justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. And later in our service, as we participate in communion, we're going to be reminded again that God in His infinite justice, the triune God, answers sin at Calvary with justice. And in answering sin with justice, He then adds mercy by punishing Himself. Punishing Himself. Christ, a member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, everyone involved. And in punishing Christ, He fulfills the determination of justice, and yet, in Christ taking our sins, He demonstrates mercy. And we in turn, what is our response to this? Our response is to shake our head and gasp for breath and understand again all that He has achieved. And with incredulity, we shake our heads and wonder how could He possibly love us this much? How could He do this to us? Quite simply, because... He loved us. Sometimes people will say to me, Richard, we know how Christians today come to trust in the love and grace of God. We understand that He impacts and changes our lives, but we live after Calvary. We simply look back and see all that He has achieved and awe, and we remember and we will do that this morning. But what about those living way back in the Old Testament? How can they possibly come to a living faith since they lived way back then before the cross? How does it impact them? And in John chapter 12 we read these words. And Isaiah is talking of the death of Christ. And John is quoting him and he says, Isaiah said this because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. And as we look back, folks in the Old Testament looked forward with expectation and anticipation, with thanksgiving and profound gratitude that a day would come when God Himself would save His people from their sins. It's all over the book of Isaiah, various other places as well. And so Isaiah, in writing this, can you imagine him writing? Can you imagine the 
deep, profound sighs as he's writing and explaining and unfolding the miraculous work of God at Calvary. That's why he writes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with him was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. And if you are here this morning, if you are watching at home today, and you are tempted to give in and say, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I think I understand what you're saying. But please hear me when I say this. If God knew me the way you tell me he knows me, he could not possibly love me. The things I've done, the thoughts that have gone through my mind, the way I've treated others, it is impossible for him to love someone like me. And if you are living with regrets of the past, if you are fearful to come to Him and seek His presence and His forgiveness and His transforming grace, if that describes you, this is a morning designed intentionally for you. Please never give in to the belief that there is a place so dark His love cannot meet you there and transform it, and change it, and draw you into a relationship with himself. Please do not believe the lie that you are nothing, will never amount to anything. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's how magnificent, and splendid, and spectacular it is. Because it is offered to every one in every generation from every tribe and tongue that's why Isaiah is so excited because Isaiah in looking forward know that all of history marches towards Golgotha and all of history pours from it it is the very climax of God's redemptive plan and he does it for us for us and please notice finally what he says in verse 10. And Isaiah writes, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And that's a reference to the resurrection, of course. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And the resurrection comes up at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's why he's able to say, it is finished. He accomplished our salvation. He didn't simply make it possible. Golgotha is not about probability or possibility. It is about the love of God accomplishing the salvation of humanity. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Sometimes, and you've heard me say this often in the past, we are tempted to think that Christ went to Calvary because Pontius Pilate was a jealous and weak Roman governor. 
Christ went to the cross because of the Pharisees' antipathy and jealousy towards him. And they manipulated the political and religious system of their day in order to put him to death. At other times we're tempted to think he was there because of Judas' betrayal. And to some extent all of that is true, but that is not the whole picture. That is not what held him on the cross. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was our sin that put him to Calvary. And on a morning like this, We get to pause and remember and allow His love and grace to overwhelm us, move us to tears. I was 20 years old before I came to a living faith. I'd heard the gospel all my life. I'd attended church thousands upon thousands of times, but had no living faith. I didn't even know it was possible I thought that church was about attendance and ritual and set prayers at set times. And that would be enough, thank you. No idea that a relationship was possible. No idea that he could forgive my sin. Sure, the sin of the world, I knew that, but my sin. And Isaiah was able to write this. Because he looked forward and saw exactly that in the glory of Jesus. When was his greatest moment? Golgotha. And that's why we sing, Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember the enormity and the immensity of what took place at Calvary and His eternal love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that You loved us enough to come into this world You loved us enough that Christ died for us and gave His life for us. And today we recognize that He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, afflicted by Him. And He was pierced for our transgressions. And yet, Father, remind us, please, as we now come to bread and juice and remind ourselves that the destructive and devastating consequence of sin not only determined Calvary is necessary, but by extending your eternal love to us, you make Calvary possible. Oh, Father, bless us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.